Chris Moody, welcome back to Radical Personal Finance. It's so great to be here and live and in person. <laughs> Indeed, live and in person this time. The last time you were on the show, you and your wife had been traveling. It was July. So you'd been traveling at that time for a month? Barely a month. We had just gotten on the road. And now here we sit. We have traveled 21,000 miles, nine or 10 months in 72 square feet, living in a cargo van with my wife. And we still love each other so much. <laughs> so you're, t you're taking the answer to my question up front. Would you do it again? If you <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we have learned so much uh, in living this time together in a small space, traveling all over the United States and Canada. Um, I'll tell you, we would do it so much that we're going to do it again in 2019. We've got a whole nother leg of the trip around the country. And I would tell you where we're going, but I don't know yet. That's the beauty of it. <laughs> so give new listeners who didn't hear your first appearance on the show the 30-second version of what happened and, and how you and your wife came to travel like this. My wife and I lived in New York City, and because of a job layoff, uh, we had a new opportunity to do kind of whatever we wanted to. Uh, and so we decided to sell and give away all of our possessions, got rid of our apartment, bought a used cargo van, and together built a 72-square-foot off-grid home inside the cargo van and decided that that would be that and gas would be our only expense. And we traveled all over the country, um, in part embedding with communities that have chosen to, as we would say, opt out of a lot of mainstream ways of living to try to find a, a new American dream. And uh, we met a lot of people along the way. Um, and uh, it is not for everyone, but uh, we learned to live for free all across America. So many places you can sleep and stay uh, overnight without paying a dime. And our only expenses were food and gas and maybe some fun. And the most important thing about that transition is you were living in a penthouse apartment in Manhattan. So you were in the middle of the hoity-toity crowd, and now you're a van dweller. So this was quite the transition. It was a complete transition, although we were kind of transitioning that direction in how we lived our lives in Manhattan. Uh, you know, I worked in media, and I was very much sucked into the everyday minutia of the world, mm -hmm. of, of Washington and of, of culture and of politics. Um, but we set some very strict rules when we lived in New York City about how we would live when we were together in our apartment. For example, not to be vague, but for example, we um, would not have any device use beyond the threshold of the door in the apartment. And right. when we were home together, we were present and home together. And we would live this kind of quiet log cabin existence uh, in the middle of Manhattan while we were home. And that's really the way we were heading. And it just so happened that we ended up taking it into an extreme level right. by living in the woods in a van for nine right, months. Right. So your experience and my own family's experience, we've just returned from almost six months on the road, not quite as many miles, but about 13,000 miles and uh, I guess 25, 30 states, something like that. I never, I need to go back and count them, but we've also had an interesting experience. And the bulk of what we're going to focus on in today's discussion is basically the United States of America, what's happening at this moment. And I thought this would be a really fun interview for us to do together because we both have curious personalities. You come from a professional uh, reporter's background, so you have that natural bent uh, or cultivated bent probably to asking questions and learning people's stories. You've traveled all four corners of the country over the last six months. We've traveled uh, a good portion of the country. And one of my main reasons for going out and traveling, in addition to personal reasons, was to get a sense of what's happening in the United States of America. One of the big challenges for me in building radical personal finance is I no, I no longer have a water cooler or a coffee pot to talk around. 
uh, it's very easy for me in a normal week to sit in front of my computer and all of my work is solitary. I don't work physically with any coworkers. I just sit in front of my computer and I get together with a few personal friends and, you know, some church friends. And that's about it as far as my in-person interaction. And what I have learned is that's very dangerous for me because then it leads me trying to form my understanding of what's happening in the world from Twitter <laughs> or from YouTube or from you know NewYorkTimes.com or whatever those kinds of things are. And I, I've struggled to maintain a grip on reality without having coworkers to talk to at the coffee pot. And, and so today we're going to talk about what's happening in the country. And you and I have both been out traveling, getting a sense of what's happening. So my question for you. Is what you've observed over the last six months a surprise to you? Is it about is the world about how you thought it was when you were living in Manhattan, or is it very different? The short answer is no. Uh, I learned a lot. Um, first of all, let me set the scene of how I we lived. Um, so part of this experience, uh, I almost completely opted out of any exposure to media. I have not read the news in months, although I found I'm exposed to information. People just tell me things, right. so I don't feel less informed. But I used to read the news on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, and, and you were, I don't. You were reporting the news. I was reporting. That used to be the news, yeah. right? But I also don't consume online content anymore. My phone went from a content machine to just something that tells me how to get places or or where a restaurant is. And that's just about, and to make phone calls and texts. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Uh, and, and so it seems like while I was on the road for the past nine months, the whole country was acting like everything was on fire. And yet the world that I was encountering on a human-to-human -human basis was nothing like that. I don't know if people are living multiple lives where on Facebook they act like everything is crazy and that they feel crazy, but in person and out, I want to say out in the country, but you know, I used to live in Washington, D.C. and in New York City, and there it's just all right in your face. And you start to think that those East Coast cities are the only cities, not that matter, but that exist. Right. And everything, <laughs> everything else is just like, eh, it's a thing out there. And and I know that that is a stereotype, but that is, um, you, you get to a very narrowly focused viewpoint when you live in those places for a long time and to get out into the country uh, and, and just listen to people. So I found that uh, for the most part, people are living really happy, positive lives, and they're not focused so much on the news as people think they are. They're focused on their family their jobs, and what they're going to do this weekend. And and that is what they talk about. Let me give you an example, Josh. Uh, so I made it a point when I was in my job, I always had to ask people about politics. That was my job. Mm -hmm. What do you think of Trump? What do you think of Hillary Clinton? What do you think of what's going on? Well, going out on my own really gave me an opportunity to not ask those questions and see what people say. In nine months, no one brought up politics once. And I talked to a lot of people. Really? I let them guide the conversation. Right. Not a single person mentioned what was going on in Washington. Now, they might have just been polite because I was new, but right, I spent right. a good amount of time with people, maybe a series of days. There is so much more to talk about. Mm -hmm. and, they have to, and they have an interest in talking about it, um, but it, it didn't have anything to do with what was in, in the newspaper. And I found that phenomenally refreshing, but also fascinating as right, well. Right, right. Uh, so... Frankly, Chris, I don't know how to, to analyze these. So I also, when we were traveling, I also was very cut off from much of the media world. I've had 
massive problems disconnecting myself from my phone in order to get anything done. I'll tell you how extreme I've had to be. So for years, I've taken off social media. I used to be addicted to YouTube. I took off YouTube. Then I, uh, I took off all the social media apps. It got so bad that for me to get something done, I had to completely eliminate my browser, my web browser from my phone. <laughs> so for the entirety of our traveling around the country, not once I didn't log on to Facebook. Uh, haven't logged on in eight months at this point. Uh, I didn't log on to almost anything and I did, did not have a web browser on my phone. My wife has much more self-control than I do. So if we need to look something up, we use her phone because I did not have it and it completely removed the utility of this, this thousand dollar device in my pocket, but it made me much more peaceful. But I would drive around and I would look at people and I would, I would imagine the arguments that I used to get into online and I'd be driving past some house in, in Colorado or, or, or and I'd see a house and I would think this person is on Facebook. This person is talking there, but this life that I see around them doesn't seem connected to the arguments and the vitriol and the politics and whatnot there. So is it just that the people are living too? And I had the same experience that people didn't talk in real life like they, like we do all, all of us online. So is it just that we maintain two different personalities, one a real life person and one an online persona or are there just the people in the in Washington and New York? They're the ones who are arguing, and no one else cares. Uh, no, people do care, but I think people in Washington and New York assume that most people are thinking about them right. far more than right. they are. I and, agree. And you know, in the business that I was, I remember thinking that what Congressman so and so just said in the hallways of Congress was the most important thing, and I had to get it out immediately, and it was going to change the right, world. Right, right. And I realized, oh, people consume a lot slower right. um, than than they do in when you're in the the belly of the beast so to speak. Um, but no, I, I think you might find that people are living two separate lives, but you'll find that even though the noise is all about what is happening in the West Wing or in Washington right now, that seems like all that's going on in the country. There is so much more going on in the country. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the cities around the country that people might not have given a lot of credit to in the past 30 or 40 years are really blossoming and coming into becoming real centers of, of culture and art and, um, and, and places beyond just New York City uh, are you know, really exciting places to live with exciting people. And that might be news to some right, people right, back right, east, right. but it's so true. Right. Absolutely. Last comment on just the influence. Yeah. I ran the numbers one time on, I was looking at the uh, viewership for the cable news channels. And it seems like the cable news channels seemingly drive all the conversation. Everyone's always either talking about what just got reported on the cable news channels on whichever side of the political spectrum. And I looked at it and I said, you know, with the exception of a few big shows, which might have a million or two million people, you know, a big Fox News show or something like that, the average audience for a cable news channel is under half a million people. And yet this under half a million people don't, they're not sitting and watching it currently. It's just on in the background. So Nielsen's scraping the fact that it's on, but they're not necessarily paying total attention to it in a nation of 300 million people. That's really not that much of an impact. Most people just don't care about the news. Most people don't care about what all of that stuff is self-importance. But when I'm in the middle of it, I think it's all that matters. And you've been far more in the middle of it than I have. And only getting out of it and completely walking away from it. Have I seen, listen, there, it's not that important. The crisis of the day is not the most important uh, important thing. Uh, so I, I agree with you. Now, I want to talk about a number of different areas and try to speak practically about our observations. And I'm here, I brought you here to balance me out because I have a tendency to be more negative probably than is, than is warranted. I struggle with um, this question of optimism or pessimism because uh, 
I think that optimism is always the logical solution. If we look and analyze, life is getting better in general for most of us on most every metric in general. If you look at the course of the history of the world, millions of people are coming out of poverty. Things are getting better. It's just hard for us to recognize it because we don't understand what it was like a decade ago. And we're so caught up in the crisis of the day that we don't see the macro trends. So I think that the logical position is to be optimistic. But I also observe and see that things have changed. I don't know... Um, what you what your reading has been like while you've been on the road but the most influential book i read in 2018 was a book called the silk roads and the author um or the silk road the author was a historian and he traced the history of the world in this this about 500 pages and it was fascinating because of course he was touching on basic things but what i saw was that the history of the world is constantly a history of problems and figuring out how to bring together this macro trend while being realistic with the micro trends, I find it impossible. And I don't know how to do it, especially as looking at the United States. I think you just look at the data over the long period of time that the trajectory, despite a lot of hiccups, uh, it, as in terms of prosperity, health is, is up. And, and I think it's easy to feel pessimistic because we are met with a lot of noise that sounds very scary. Um, but we also are heading into this new year um, that is a year where there's more prosperity than there ever has been. Um, and I know that it's it's not maybe doled out, so to speak, in, in a way that some people would, would appreciate it right. to be, right? Um, but, but I think the trend lines are going up. We have access to more goods and services, and there's more trade happening between nations than there ever has been before. And with more trade comes more peace, not ultimate, not all, you know, eternal peace, but some. Uh, and, and so I, I can only be optimistic on a grand scale, but still go through the year being, you know, pessimistic about maybe the way that the culture is heading or, or the way that, you know, the, the priorities the country is focusing on. Um, but uh, in the long term, I can only feel good. When you traveled across all the corners of the country, did you observe one America? Did you observe two, multiple how do you put together the fabric of this nation? Less divided than we're given credit for. The one thing that I found amazing and could not believe was, well, this is back when I was reading the news, uh, all the essays saying, we are a, the most divided we've ever been, and we're heading for some kind of fracture, a civil war. Right. Y'all, everybody, <laughs> most people are like pretty chill with their neighbors. Right. They, I... There was no sense that the people I was meeting or talking to of any kind were gearing up to get their muskets and pitchforks and heading for the hills to fight the Civil War. This was not in anyone's mind. Like I said earlier, they're thinking about what their weekend plans are with their family. And the idea of no one has the effort to go forth and fight a Civil War. Like This is not a thing in people's minds. I think it's a thing for those who live their life through Twitter. And as a person who used to do that, it's easy to think that... Twitter.com is the only universe that exists. Right. It's right in your face. It's there throughout all of your day, from the morning you wake up, and then when you go to bed at night. But that is not the world. But it, it seemed like the people writing those essays were living in that universe. You got to take a deep breath and step back and realize that that is not happening. That right. is not. So that's the biggest, I think, myth that that I saw. It's not nearly as as right. divided. Right. Um, on policy. Yes, absolutely. And we're about to go through another presidential election cycle, and it's going to be wild, and it's going to be crazy. Right. Um, and I, I would recommend any listener to just 
consume your media wisely. Right. Do it in a, in a controlled fashion. Don't let it control your entire day. Take a half hour a day to read the news, and then that's it. Right, right. <laughs> so when I look at the country, I, I agree with you in terms of generally. I think there's a lot less fracturing of what it means to be an American. I think in general, if you look at wars, you know, the politicians um, declare wars, but normal people don't go to war. Like they don't want to go to war. They don't, the people, if, if, if the people who actually go to war were the ones that would vote for it, we wouldn't be in any wars, but it's the politicians that go to war and they send everyone else's kids off to war. And that's, and I think to me, that just seems generally true in most countries, most places in the world and, and most wars. But I do think that there's a lot happening economically. I think there's a pretty significant divide happening economically and it's all across the country. There are different discussions of it. Some people talk about it of the coasts versus the interior. A lot of discussion can be made of the city versus the country. You can talk about it on the level of academic achievement, but it seems to me that there are a lot of people who are really doing well and a lot of people who are really struggling. And the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And that seems to be challenging to figure out, well, how do we fix this? What were your observations economically? Uh, well, over the past five years, I'd say we've gotten very used to looking at the stock market and it going up, 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 up. Right. And that makes it really exciting for us to log on to whatever our bank account is, uh, where we have our stock brokerages mm -hmm. and, and look at the trend line going up. Uh, and so we might have gotten into the habit of checking it every day. Uh, and in the next year ahead or the next few years, I'm no prognosticator, but maybe it won't be so. Right. Maybe it won't only go up. So while we've gotten used to checking it all day, uh, it might not be nearly as fun. And that might, talking about short-term pessimism, really get us down. Right. Uh, and I, I think it's important for people to, in this time of, of uncertainty, um, look back at your long-term plan and make sure you're comfortable and confident in it, and then rest your hope on that and not on your daily habit of, of checking the stock market. Um, but to your question about uh, the divide, uh, I think the data is the data are showing that the while there is divides in certain areas, poor people that are are in poverty still the life um, the standard of living right. is increasing absolutely and and so you know I would still say that it's it's still you know people are are doing better year after year. Yeah, I agree. And so the, the classic argument, which I would affirm, is the, what matters is not so much the difference between the rich and the poor in terms of the nominal difference. What matters is what is the standard of living? And so the poorest among us today, even on a global basis, the poorest among us today are richer than we've ever been. Which brings me to my big concern. And, and I sometimes question, Chris, if I'm just too much of a pessimist. I certainly do. But when I look at it culturally, my one of my biggest concerns culturally is I see us feeding greed and covetousness in the culture and envy. Like, like the besetting sins of the U.S. American culture that I would say right now are primarily those three which are all together, covetousness, greed, and envy. And we, we, we seem to be, in my observation, just indulging this very dangerous idea of saying, well, let's take from other people. And we seem to have become a culture of takers uh, rather than a culture of people who recognize the opportunities we have and want to 
engage in those. We, we, we've become much more focused on our jealousy of what our neighbor has and how can we get some of it for us, get me some, rather than how can we produce something that our neighbor might want to buy from us. I think you hit on something very important about covetousness uh, and envy. Uh, I, I think we're e- reaching an envy epidemic right now, and, uh, and I think the access to... Um, constant use of smartphones is having something to do with this, where people are spending their entire day mixing, looking at what everyone else is doing, and then expressing their best live on Instagram right, or right. Facebook, and then feeling envious of it. Uh, have you, has this ever happened to you? You just spent the most amazing day with your family where you took an adventure climbing a mountain or having a picnic, and it was just so pleasant and beautiful. And then at the end of the Sunday evening, you check Instagram and you see somebody else had a good time, right. and then you feel bad <laughs> right, about right. them having maybe a better time right. than you have. We do that. Um, and you mix that with like the constant access of online shopping. I think we are seeing a time when people are are living lives of envy, and that is poison. Yeah. And... and um, I hope people are becoming more aware that they need to put up barriers just like you did on on your phone to protect themselves from these feelings because these are very base human feelings. There's a reason why ancient ethical and religious codes mentioned it, right? (laughs) like the big ones, the Ten Commandments, because uh, the people from 3,000 years ago were dealing with the same stuff we are, and this is not going to go away and not change. Right, right. But I I get concerned about what that's doing in people's lives. I, I fear it's leading, especially... So here, here's what I see, and I think there's good sociological data to this. The, the book that uh, probably was my book of the year in 2017 was I read Charles Murray's book, Coming Apart. Uh, it's called this Coming Apart, the State of White America from 1960 to 2010. Uh, and in that book, Murray posited the argument that, in essence, there are two brand new social classes in the United States of America, an upper class elite uh, that had never before existed in the United States of America. And that upper-class elite was not measured in terms of, of nominal wealth, because there'd always been rich people in, in the United States, but rather it was measured in terms of a cultural, a distinctive culture, an elite culture, uh, which may or may not come with wealth. And then he also posited that there was a new lower class that had been built. Again, not in terms of poverty, but in terms of a distinctive lower class culture. And that this was the change from 1960 to 2010 that was marked in U.S. American society. And what I was frankly horrified to discover was that I'm part of the upper class elite. I always thought I was a common man. And then I read his book and I took his test and I was shocked to find out that, wait a second. <laughs> you were in the bubble as it were, right? I was in the bubble. Yeah, and, I, and that yeah. was sobering to me because I've, I've always prided myself of not being in the bubble. I've always tried to be exposed to other things, but I was squarely in the bubble, my wife too. And then I realized how, how in the bubble that we, we really were. But I've seen this expressed more and more. And let me give you just an example from my, my history. When I was in college, I spent some time in Nicaragua, which is um, the second, or at least was at the time, the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, Haiti, of course, being the poorest. And Nicaragua basically at the time had six and a half million inhabitants, six million of which were desperately poor and half a million of which were desperately rich. And just a massive you know, caste system in terms of wealth. And I, I stayed with this family for a week out in the in the compo, and the, we, it was a it was a nice enough house compared to the rest of the village. We had concrete walls, but we had dirt floors, and it was very basic. And many of the houses in the village, dirt floors, um, tin you know rusty tin roofs, walls that you could see through. Uh, we had a latrine. We were we we poured a bucket of water over our heads for a shower. Extremely basic. 
and uh, I would wake up in the morning with chickens uh, (laughs) uh, uh, under my bed. They would come in and and scratch around on the floor in the living room. And I watched every night. I watched uh, the Nicaraguan family I was staying with. They had, I think, five or six children. I watched them sit and watch telenovelas for about three or four hours which were coming from Buenos Aires, from from all of the rich cosmopolitan cities. And I'd watch them sit there and watch these telenovelas for hours. And here we are sitting in plastic, um, you know, porch chairs, which is what the world's poor sit in, in a, in a dirt hut, watching telenovelas from the upper class high rise. And I thought, this is so destructive. This is utterly destructive because instead of our th- these people actually doing something or having the time to do it, they're sucked into this entertainment culture that's all about things that are completely unattainable. And yet the same thing I see happening today. And so I stand in line in poor areas of the United States where you can see that poverty is very, very evident all around. And there everyone is flipping on Instagram, next, 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 you know, celebrity this, celebrity that, things that are totally unattainable. And it's really troubling to me because I don't see how without a cultural transformation, which I think has to start at the, ba- at the base, I don't see how that, that, that leads to good things. I, I don't know how to, how, to, how to fix that. Well, I think with the divide, you, you're talking about, as you put it, an, an elite divide. Uh, and, and I think we saw a lot of evidence of that frustration in the 2016 election. Absolutely. Uh, where people did not feel listened to. They did not feel that their views um, were put, in, at, at least cast in the way that they thought that they meant, or, or at least misinterpreted, you know. Um, but, but they felt like they, you know, were not being represented properly in the culture centers of the country, New York, Los Angeles, right. Washington, right? Um, and, and I think that there was so much frustration about that, that, you know, that for some people is why they voted the way that they did. Right. Uh, and then expressed themselves in the way that they have um, over the past couple of years. Right, right. So what do you see happening kind of just culturally or socially or religiously mm-hmm. or these cuz cuz I don't I I struggle to talk about economics cuz I don't I think economics is downstream of culture in a sense. First of all, I don't think you can compare economics to the stock market because most people don't own stocks. The average person just simply doesn't own stocks and so you, so you, you can't look and say well the stock market is doing well so that automatically is indicative of the economy. They are related but they're not directly related. I think the stock market it has a much bigger influence on the elite and the wealthy elite who own stocks uh, rather than on the majority of the U.S. American population. So, but I do think economically, you can, of course, look at things like employment. You can look at things like wealth, et cetera, and those are important. But that's downstream of, in my opinion, culture of what's happening in a person's life. Because today, I defend without reservation that if you are willing to work hard you can get a job, you can earn plenty of money, and you can become wealthy. There is nothing standing in the way of you uh, in the sense of if you have the character to do those things. I talk to people all the time, employers, business owners. They cannot find good help. They can't find people who will show up to work on time, not be drunk or high when they get there, and will do the job that they're told to do. If you just do that, then you have opportunity. And then once you're earning income, it's never been cheaper in some ways, on some measurements, never been cheaper, easier to live cheaper. I mean, here you are living in a van. Um, you, you know, anybody could live in a van. Uh, you can buy most of the things in life very inexpensively. You can have access to things that the kings of the world didn't have access to. You're being so optimistic, Josh. <laughs> right. Well, well here's, here's my point for pessimism. <laughs> the problem is you have to have character. You have to have 
I don't know what other word you have to have some some get up and go. And if you're sitting around, you know, smoking weed in a hovel, thrilled with the fact that now marijuana is legal, so that you can sit back and and destroy any kind of 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 energy that you can put towards your life. How do we? I don't see how you 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 get there without a cultural transformation. And, and I, I look at that and that's where I see the weakness. Um, the, the, the social fabric, the cultural fabric to me seems very thin Mm -hmm. at the moment. So one thing that I've seen is people spending a lot of their time focusing on stuff that's happening in Washington and sometimes not as much that's happening in their living room. Right. Um, and I think you, this is a very easy thing. You can find out, do you spend more time reading or thinking about something happening thousands of miles away in the federal city or in, in your home? And if the answer is in Washington and you're not working in politics, well, maybe you need to think, uh, have a readjustment of that. Uh, and, and I would hope that, that people uh, can focus more on the things over which they do have control. And I'm not talking about local politics. I'm talking about micro things like themselves and then their family and then their community just beyond that and spending more time working on those than thinking about the upcoming election um you know people spend a lot or uh, major forces spend a lot of money uh getting you to want to think about politics a lot and right. about elections and um it takes a lot to kind of resist that there's a there's a heavy advers- advertising machine not just for right. products but for politics right, right. as well so i hope the same thing yeah, but I hope the same thing. Right, right. But my question is, are people doing that? I'm worried, given the power of media these days, in that it's not only in your living room now, but it's also in your pocket and in your bedroom and in your bathroom and wherever else you want to take it. Right. These are incredibly powerful forces where people spend, as I said, a lot of money going for your attention. And I don't know in the near term that people are going to be able to resist those forces. I know that they are not right now. Um, But as I've come kind of back into society for the holidays, I have noticed while listening to the radio or watching television for the first time, people starting to feel a bit of uneasiness about the power it has over them and thinking, at least in the beginning stages of thinking how they can take back some of their time uh, and 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 not be controlled by these forces. But I don't see a big cultural shift happening anytime soon, which does worry me. I think we'll be more led by external cultural forces that we bring into our homes than the, the power of, of our home culture uh, transforming the outside. Um, so there's here's, my here's a piece of data. Pessimism. Here's a piece of data in in favor of of what you're saying. You of course wouldn't have seen it because you were living in the woods under a rock. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a few months ago, there was a series of articles in the New York Times, and it was talking about smartphone culture in Silicon Valley. And basically, the most anti-smartphone place has become Silicon Valley. And it's good reporting. I should find the articles for you because you 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 would read them. You should read them. But it, it even went so far to talk about how the Silicon Valley parents have a virtually a spy network where they spy on one another's nannies. And one of the things that now mothers and fathers who are working in Silicon Valley at the big tech companies, they hire nannies to take care of their children. And they have their nannies sign a contract that the nanny is forbidden from looking at her smartphone 
while she's at work. And so then if somebody's at the park <laughs> and they see a nanny pushing the kids on the swing and the nanny's using the phone, they'll take pictures of it. And they have message boards among the mothers and fathers there about whose nanny is this? I saw them on their phone, etc. And so if you look at... Um, uh, Melinda Gates has uh, has been quoted as saying, I wish we had waited longer to expose our children to technical devices. Steve Jobs famously uh, didn't permit uh, uh, devices for his children for, for some period of time. And several other big names in tech who basically all kind of narrow down. And so... And then similar things on classrooms. What you see is in Silicon Valley, as reported in these series of articles um, by the New York Times, what you see in Silicon Valley is a press away from computerized classroom teaching. And so you see a much more of a turning away from screens, getting children off of screens, using other forms of education. But simultaneously... Google is uh, uh, Google and Apple are both constantly trying to get Chromebooks and iPads into every school and trying to get every single student on their platforms. And the whole idea is we're going to go with this virtual education. Everybody thought what well, would be the rich people who have computers and the poor people who don't, but it's turned into the exact opposite. The poor people's children are being raised by their smartphones and the rich people's children are being raised by actual teachers. A and so there's a piece of data to your, to your thesis, but this is what adds to my concern because I don't see how... Uh, <sighs> Chris, I've become such a curmudgeon. It's, it's so bad. But I, I don't like to be critical of people. But, but you can't go out to dinner and find children talking to their parents. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of world are my children going to live in when children, when their peers don't know how to talk to their parents? Mm -hmm. it, uh, it, uh, it's a real concern. Um, and you have to set the, the boundaries in, in your home um, for this to work at all. No one is going to legislate this and they shouldn't, but right, right. <laughs> you know, um, but, uh, this is what I mean when I say people need to turn more inward to their home culture than turning outward and just bringing the culture in and letting them babysit their children that way. Uh, I, I have since, you know, if you read the new book, um, called iGen, you know, um, it talks about the generation that comes after the millennials. Um, and I, you know, the data is still rolling in every day, but it, it makes me very nervous you know, uh, about the future. And that is a very like old man yelling at cloud thing to say. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, although if I could say one positive thing, generation X, I think is maybe the greatest generation of our time because <laughs> they're the only ones like not whining or not doing disastrous <laughs> things and going to work and right, making right. the country run. I am not Gen X. I, I am a millennial, but I have great respect for the generation X. Hold on. My son is crawling on a table. Hold on. <laughs> Child crisis averted. I guess... Kind of in summary, Chris, I was hoping when I went on my walkabout, I was hoping to come to some conclusion about the future of the country. I was hoping to come to some conclusion about um, you know, positivity or negativity. And I know that it's naive to think that it would be all one way or the other. Obviously, that's naive. Life is not so simple. It, life is a combination of things uh, together. And there's always going to be advances and declines, and those things are going to come and go. I just don't know what to make of it. I still don't. I didn't come to any conclusions. I didn't come to it. I, I can't, the only conclusion I came to, I guess I could say this, the conclusion that I came to was you can create a positive successful environment in your own microclimate, so to speak, in your own area. And frankly, my, my biggest concerns is the cultural, the declining culture. And, and specifically, I mean marriage, 
family formation, which leads to success. Because with the attacks that marriage are under, these things have, I mean, these things have long, long-term effects. And they have long-term financial effects as well. Uh, we could get into that data, but of course, we, we don't have it at our fingertips. But I see it happening all around. And w- what I observe is with the increasing angst about politics, perhaps it's just the coastal elites who, who, who live and breathe in this world. But basically what I see many of my peers doing is because we've walked away from the areas where we can actually make a difference, we spend our time arguing about things we can't make a difference. And this just leads to depression. So like, I'm the king of my castle. I can make a difference in my castle. I don't have to ask anybody. I don't have to apply for a license. I have my wife and I have my children and I can make a difference there. And that difference will ripple throughout the coming centuries in terms of what I do. So far be it from me, it would be what a disaster for me to waste my time arguing with people online about things that I can't change and thus ignoring the needs of my own children. And yet, and the same thing in my neighborhood, I can make a difference in my neighborhood. I can make a difference in my business. I can make a difference in my job. I cannot make a difference on who the next president of the United States is going to be. And so... I observe that that's the only solution I have found is to walk away from that nightmare and to focus on loving my wife, loving my children, and loving my neighbor and building the local community that can endure. Because that local community is what will build the fabric of the next generation. That local community is what will build the fabric of my neighbors and their success, their stability. And I can't go across the country and say to all those millions of people what I think they should do if I haven't even gone across the fence to my next door neighbor and said, how can I serve you? How can I help you? That's, that's the only solution I've come to. Well, I think a lot of people could gain a lot by coming to that solution as well. Look, I, I don't mean to say that everybody should completely opt out of reading the news. I did it as a personal experiment and now I can bring it back into my life in a more healthful way. Um, but I think we, we can change our relationship with the national political scene and not let it dominate us so much. And, and that gives us more time to focus on the things over which we do have control, like you just said. Um, and, and I think that would be, at least for me personally, the, the, one of the biggest takeaways from, from my trip would have been actually very similar to what you described. But when I was in, the fury of it all in, in the, in the other world. Um, I didn't give myself the time to think and realize that. And, um, you know, I'm grateful for the experience and, uh, I, I hope other people can, can come to that conclusion as well and start thinking about ways that they can set up systems that'll allow them to focus on what is more important. I really hope people in the next year, um, begin to start thinking about these things uh, and practicing them in their daily life. But I do think it's going to be a long, tough road with uh, moments of great reckoning that might be painful. And it might feel like a couple steps forward of more steps back. Um, but darn it, I'm still going to be optimistic that <laughs> that we are going to come out of, of these uncertain and strange times, um, learn from it, and um, and 
hopefully uh, build better communities. But I know that sounds kind of hokey. I know it does, but uh, well, it, I, I can't help it. Here's what I observe. It does sound hokey. But <laughs> I'm if sorry. You, if you, you, it's funny. If you look at so many people who study the problems from so many perspectives, people arrive at common solutions, and this is one of them. Uh, there are people from every background who basically arrive at these common solutions. I want to ask you a closing question and just give you a chance to, to talk about your trip in this way. Um, I think one of the most useful things that we could encourage people to do is from time to time to take a sabbatical. I believe that the concept of retirement, as in work for 40 years and then retire and play golf for 30 years, is broken because it doesn't, it's broken. It was a, a, a conspiracy foisted upon the poor by those who were trying to reduce the unemployment numbers. <laughs> but um, the concept of sabbatical, I think, is so valuable. Work a project for a number of years, be it five, seven, eight, nine, ten years, whatever, and then take a sabbatical, take a year off, take two years, take six months, and do something different. And when you go back to it, you'll go back to something new, something productive. Instead of sitting around playing golf for 30 years, you'll go back to something productive, but you go with a renewed energy, vigor, focus, etc. That's what I've seen that you've done. What is your comment after having uh, been on a sabbatical? Uh, well, I would say that doing something like this is not possible for everybody. And I wouldn't be so privileged as to, to think that, oh, couldn't anybody just take time off? You, you, you can, you just have to work very hard to build systems that are beyond the big system. And it's incredibly difficult to do that. That said, one thing people can do is take the concept of Sabbath on a more micro level more seriously. Um, anything from an entire day to just having micro Sabbaths during your day. For example, used to be we would take micro Sabbaths all the time. And what I mean by that is a bike ride with your girlfriend or boyfriend or your wife uh, or an afternoon picnic with your family. When you would leave your house in the age before cell phones and everything, you were completely off grid right, right. during that time. Right. Uh, and that is no longer the case. You are still opening yourself up to interruptions. Uh, and I don't know about you, but if I'm interrupted, my head, if my headspace is not where I am, then I'm not there anymore. I'm gone into the phone or into the news or whatever. And so to your point, I would encourage people that if they can't take a, a real sabbatical to take micro Sabbaths during their day when they are truly with the people they love or alone in solitude and and taking back that time for themselves in a way that we did only a couple of years ago. And I think you will find a profound difference in the way um, that you perceive the world and you're refreshed enough to be able to tackle the hard things that are demanded of us in the future. So you've gone around interviewing people who are opting out. Uh, what, what story or what person that you've interacted with uh, so far has really stuck with you, has made you think? One of the first groups of people we met that um, are, are known in the personal finance community, the um, the Frugalwoods family up in Vermont. Mm -hmm. A lot of people know them. They've heard of them. They saved a large percentage of their income and then um, semi-retired uh, to a pastoral life uh, in Vermont uh, in the way they wanted to live, where they made the terms of their life. What they did took an incredible amount of work, but it also took um, a lot of bravery in stepping out and saying, we are not going to live as everyone tells us to live. We're going to do what we're going to do. And there may be consequences to that, but we don't care. Uh, and the fact that they fashioned the life that they wanted to build um, and everyone's dream is different. 
Um, but they were able to do it because they had the discipline and and then went ahead and did it themselves. And I, I would say that they're a, a phenomenal example of what any normal person could do uh, if, first of all, you know your goals, but then work very difficult, diligently every single day uh, to reach them both in a micro and a macro level. I look forward to reading the book when you uh, finish writing it. <laughs> uh, your platform is Life Opted Out on Instagram, Life Opted Out, right? That's right. Yes. So I've been enjoying watching you there, and I look forward to hearing what uh, what's next for you and Christy. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me on. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.